Hey, everybody. Thanks for being with us. Tuesday, continuing through the Gospel of Luke. We're in the third chapter, um, focusing most of this chapter on John the Baptist. Um, kind of met him formally yesterday in the idea of baptism, repentance. We continue with that today. Verse 10 here of chapter 3. The crowds came and asked him, what should we do then? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with someone who has none. Whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to him to be baptized. And they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, what should we do? He said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. Stop there, Michael, for a minute. Um, So very interesting here is we get uh, kind of to listen in on the conversation that develops between John and the people. Remember yesterday he was pretty confrontational, brood of vipers, you can't escape, etc., and then the follow-up today, what should we do? And um, it, it is interesting that John, in many ways, equates the life that the people are to lead with being moral, that, that essentially to do the right thing. And, and it's very interesting here, you know, it, as they came to be baptized— we see John here in this role of forerunner, both in his ministry and his proclamation. And we're going to hear things like this from Jesus. But John gives them voice here. And they're largely, in some ways, simple things. Tax collectors, don't take more than you should. Soldiers, don't extort money. If you have more than you need with coats or food, share them. So they're simple things here, but they are profound things. They speak to a life lived with a commitment toward generosity, towards justice, towards doing the right thing. And really, I think, Michael, in in some of this, we see what John has in mind when he uses the word we saw yesterday, repent, which we, we mentioned means turn around, I, I think this is what he has in mind, to turn and orient one's life toward doing the right thing. And I, I don't want to make John moralistic, but certainly moral action is a significant component of what he understands of life of faith to include. The distinction that we sometimes, I think, mistakenly apply to issues of faith is this rubric of internal faith versus outward Mm. action. And that's not a particularly, I would even argue, New Testament scriptural view. Uh, We could have conversations about what it looks like, James versus Paul. But I, I think largely when you turn to a book like Luke, these things are not in opposition, but rather they are built together in a kind of indispensably uh, tight way. And I think as we come to a text like this, we find that the revelation of our sinfulness, the awareness of the extent of our brokenness, which is what you're called to in that moment of conversion, of course, that that awareness will be the thing 
that gives us the impulse or the energy required to pivot into change lifestyle, new action. And I think that this is really summarized in a really beautiful way here when the crowds ask him in verse 10, what then shall we do? I mean, and for this section, this is an overriding question, a question for every single person, including the reader. Well, what then shall we do? And if you take that seriously, you find that that's not the only time that question appears in the book of Luke. A tax collector asks it in chapter 3, soldiers ask it again in, in chapter 3, a lawyer in chapter 10, ruler in chapter 18, goes on and on into Acts. The point here being is when one person encounters that, that awareness of brokenness, the depth of our sin, that person will be moved to respond to that in real and concrete ways. What then shall I do? What is the next thing? How does this change something in my life? This isn't just a kind of spiritual platitude, Clint. This is not just some kind of uh, it'll uh, feel good or feel different. It, it's that the behavior that comes before the revelation is different than the behavior after. Conversion changes something, and that is, to use your word, it is moral, it is ethical, it is physical, and that's a thing that we should remember. There's an interesting background here, I think, Michael, in who Luke tells us we hear from, who, who, whose words Luke shares with us here. Tax collectors and soldiers. If we proceed on the, I think, very safe assumption that the people coming to John are Jewish. We, we saw that heavily implied yesterday. There's no reason to think, there's no mention that there would have been Gentiles. That means that the people we're talking about, tax collectors and soldiers, are Jews serving under and in Roman authority. This would have meant that they were largely shunned and not accepted by their own people. So it's it's very fascinating that when Luke talks about those who need to live a moral life, he he's letting us hear from people who would have been assumed immoral by their very position according to their peers. And, and so even here we see Luke kind of highlighting the idea that Jesus is going to change things. Um, notice that these aren't these aren't Pharisees, these aren't religious people, these aren't the you know he he specifically mentions people who would not have been acceptable to their peers, and I think that's really interesting. And I think it's it it is very classic Luke, and I think we see in it this kind of. Um, theme that we've been talking about, that Luke is especially interested in the outsider, and everyone in this conversation is an outsider, and yet John has words for them. And the word isn't stop being a tax collector or quit the army. The word is be moral in the pursuit of your duty. Share with others. Don't exhort. Don't steal. Be honest. Be trustworthy. And I, th I think it's really fascinating, Michael, that those are the examples we're given here. I, I'm struck here too, Clint, by what is going to be a theme all throughout Luke. Uh, and this is a mistake we don't want to make. Luke does 
emphasize and give voice to the outsider, the person who does not have sort of social acclaim. But Luke also doesn't hide or beat around the bush as it relates to what conversion looks like for those people. And that may surprise us a little bit because the the inclusion of tax collectors, as you share, Clint, is indeed novel and unique. The inclusion of soldiers matters. But look, he says clearly, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. So in other words, it's not just, hey, being a tax collector is great. Keep being a tax collector and also give to my ministry campaign. Or you know, that that's not the response. Or Here, go to temple or yeah. Yeah, it's fundamentally you can be a tax collector, but your behavior has to reflect charity for others. It has to reflect being a person of character. You can be a soldier, but you can't use that power towards your own ends. And so it's a yes and a no simultaneously. It's acceptance, and it's also a rejection of behavior that's not conducive of the gospel or not reflective of a converted life. And that is going to happen over and over again. Jesus himself is going to teach compassion, graciousness, forgiveness consistently throughout. That's a red uh, crimson thread. Also, he's going to say, sin no more. He's going to call people to conversion. How then uh, what then shall we do will be the thing that happens in the midst of these encounters. And, and both of them are held in a beautiful, mysterious tension, and we shouldn't let go of that tension. Yeah, I was just curious, Michael. Matthew does not mention uh, tax collectors or soldiers. I, I'm not sure about Mark. It, um, we'll try to do some follow-up on that, and we can let you know. But I think it's, you know, it's, it's again, it's very interesting. Um, and John does have, we had this, conversation to some extent yesterday. John has a tremendous impact. So as we finish out the passage here, verse 15, as people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them by shutting up John in prison. So... Here we have this moment, and we sort of um, foreshadowed this yesterday. Such is John's impact that those who hear him and see him begin to think that maybe he's the one who is sent. And we, of course, in the beginning of this gospel, know that he is the one who is sent, but he's the one who is sent to herald the Messiah, not to be the Messiah. And John knows that about himself, which is a mark of his spiritual maturity. When a group of people is suggesting that you might be the holy chosen one to say, no, it's not me, is, a, is certainly um, a sign of your wisdom. John said, I baptize you with water. One more powerful than I is coming. I can't even untie his shoes. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. 
And then we get this theme that is uh, uncomfortable but prevalent, Michael, in the Gospels, this idea of separation, the idea that part of what the Gospel does, part of what the truth does, part of what faith does is it separates the in from the out. It, It makes room for everyone, but those who choose to live on the outside um, are that choice is honored. And in the gospel, there's a great deal of this kind of separation language. And we see it, we see a beginning of it here. Wheat goes one place, chaff is burnt up. Now, I, I want to be careful because you shouldn't take a detail like that and turn it into a whole bunch of stuff that it isn't. But it is a sign that even in the beginning, even before we get to Jesus, there is this idea that ultimately the gospel makes a decision, and that has a dividing element to it. And we see it here, that Jesus is coming to gather his own, but those who won't be gathered are are separated. They're on, they're on the outside, and um, we'll have lots of other chances, and, and frankly, better chances, better passages with which to have that conversation, but we see a beginning of it here. Well, you alluded to it, Clint. I I think it's worth just making explicit. It's fascinating, our temptation to put things together in in mental containers that make sense to us, because I do think people read this, they they read, but the chaff, uh, he will burn with unquenchable fire, and people immediately attribute that to an image of hell, the idea of a, a place of burning. But what is fascinating is, look here, verse 18, um, we talk about these exhortations. He proclaims good news. Verse 19, two verses later, now we're talking about Herod the ruler who's been rebuked by John because of his brother's wife, all these evil things. Uh, it's interesting how we say, well, clearly John here is talking about hell, but then immediately starts talking about the person who chose a different way and immediately gets into a public fight with John and uses that power against John to lock him up. And we know that this is going to end very badly for John and and Herod's going to give in to his brokenness. I, I think you've got to see that here we are already introducing who the oppositional characters are. Later, we're going to have the religious leaders in Jerusalem. We're even going to, in some sense, have Pilate. But here, already in the story, we've introduced Herod, who's the opponent of John, the one who has answered this question the the crowd has asked, right? They're asking themselves, um, is this the Messiah? And they're they're asking, what should we do? And here's a, a, a example par excellence of someone who is chosen to do the wrong thing. He's chosen to double down on his selfishness and his power, his acclaim, his resources, and to wield that old over other people. And uh, it's just striking to me that maybe some of that winnowing, some of that chaff, is being represented. I mean, the text may be moving to who that is, who exemplifies that. Um, and I, I think it's fascinating uh, what we might learn if we read the text without jumping to conclusions right off the bat. Yeah, it, it's difficult when we <clears throat> we see terms or, or themes that are loaded. It, it's difficult for us not to bring extra stuff to the text that may not be what the text actually says or, or means. <clears throat> also, Luke has a... Um, Pretty profound way here as it, it, verse 19 and 20 maybe feel dropped onto us 
where John the Baptist, John the Baptist, oh yeah, and Herod, John made Herod mad, and he ended up in prison. That's a hard stop for Luke, and it's it's very much the way in which he sort of says, John the Baptist has done these things. The last thing he does, at least that we hear from him, is that he predicts the coming of the next one, and then we really kind of we really kind of put that story aside. Um, fascinating that in tomorrow's text we'll see the baptism, and, and the baptism doesn't even mention John. In other Gospels, we get this story of John and Jesus interacting. That's not the case here at all. L- Luke has really told John's story for a purpose, and when he's done with it, he's kind of done with it. And and he's ready to move on, and he does so, I think, more abruptly than some of the other Gospels. Maybe I would argue all the other Gospels, Michael. I mean, I, I suppose you could split hairs on that, but um, it it's a – this isn't a subtle transition. This is really a hard stop and change direction, and I think it's, it's interesting. I, I think in some ways Luke wants to make sure – and maybe this would be the way a historian thinks, that he's he has to mention John, and now that he's done that, he's ready to move on. Um, but he seems he seems at least aware of, if not concerned by, the fact that he wants Jesus to stand alone, and he does not want John and the role of John to add any kind of confusion to what I think he wants to do next. And I think that this is the right moment to ask, what has John done in the preparing? And I think one of the things he's done is he's revealed the spiritual hunger of the people. He's revealed that there is indeed a desire for transformation and for people to have an opportunity to respond. What shall we do? I think John has showed us that. But beyond that, he has also prepared the first step of showing what the people cannot do, that baptism is all well and good, and it's that action of repentance that that does matter in the spiritual life. But ultimately, Luke is going to tell us the story of Jesus, whose life is the the salvific middle. If it's not for Jesus and his giving of himself, of his grace for us, really none of our action does matter, because ultimately it's Jesus, the Son of God, who dies, rises again, ascends into heaven. It's him who enables the kind of conversion response that the crowd is seeking. And I think that is one of the things that Luke does so masterfully, is he is telling us John's story, which provides us some backstory, and also is a greater less than situation, that John is is seen as great among the people, and Luke is now going to proceed to show us how much lesser John is than Jesus. And so, if the people see John's greatness and Jesus is so much more, what does that have to teach about us about Jesus? I, these are all ways that I think John is helping to set the stage for Jesus, and I think it's masterfully written. The only other note I would, would point out here, and Clint, correct me if I'm wrong in this, I was running through my mind. I can't think of another person uh, on Jesus's team, like the disciples or his followers. I, I can't think of another example where the people get it, where where they are humble in the face of Jesus. Or, or, you know, at some point, 
Peter and John, all of them have their their lapses in faith. They all have their seeking and vying for power. What does seem unique about John is the gospel account is one that, yes, he makes Herod mad, but when Jesus shows up, he sees Jesus for who he is. Um, he, he he honors Jesus. He humbles himself before Jesus. The, the gospels have a very positive account of John's faith in a way I can't recall um, the same kind of consistency being for the other believers. No, I mean, there's there's some complimentary moments of other characters, but uh, John is uniquely celebrated. In fact, uh, some have suggested that John is such a powerful figure that maybe by this point, the point that Luke has written, the church is trying to build in a little bit of separation, but you you have you have an expanded treatment of John in other gospels. You know, there's that there's that wonderful line: "He must increase, and I must right. decrease." Um, you you've got though that kind of thing. You've got in other gospels, John sends disciples to Jesus to ask them questions, and Jesus and John sort of have this running conversation about what it means to be the Messiah and what it doesn't mean. Um, I think in Luke we can say we see a, a strong treatment of John the Baptist, but very much subordinate to the treatment that Luke is going to give Jesus. That That's not untrue in the other Gospels, but I think it's especially true in Luke. The, the other thing I think we see, and we see it briefly, 19 and 20 here, um, John proclaims the truth, speaks against evil and it costs him right. and and in that we see a pattern we see a, a a small signpost of what is to come um luke doesn't want to play that card yet but we clearly see if we're if we read carefully we clearly encounter the idea that you can be doing the right things for the right reason you can be moved by faith and still end up on the wrong side of the world's anger and the world's power. And that is a it, it, very subtle. Luke doesn't mention it, but it is a very subtle pointer of where the Jesus story is going to end up, I think. Yeah, and it would be less subtle if you were in that first generation of Christians who knew someone yeah. who was put in prison for their faith, and your church was bringing them food in prison because otherwise they wouldn't get it. I think some of these references are are coded in that way, that, that he doesn't need to say it explicitly or directly because the earliest readers would have understood them implicitly. I think that's a great point. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're the great prophet who's going to herald the Messiah and you go and you proclaim repentance and baptism— and by the way, you make Herod mad and you, he, you end up in prison. You, that Both of those things are true. You are godly, you are proclaiming right. truth, and you end up punished. And that is a paradigm that's going to matter in all of the Gospels. Yeah, it's well said. Uh, thanks for being with us uh, for the length of this study, friends. It's good to spend time together. Hope there's been something interesting, new, and challenging for you in this. Certainly like this video. Please, that helps other people find it later in the course of their own study. Subscribe to stick with us in the midst of this series, and we look forward to seeing you all tomorrow. Thanks, everybody.